What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bedeira. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, burning out his fuse up here alone. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about rockets. And if you know us and you know this show, you know we love rockets. So there is not a chance in heck that we are here to bash rockets today. But since we sometimes talk about environmental impact on the show, Mm -hmm. and since rockets seem by their very nature to involve an awful lot of burning and emitting of substances, Mm -hmm. we thought it might be worth asking... What exactly is the environmental impact of a rocket launch, and what can we do about that impact? Yeah. Now, assuming, of course, that the environmental impact would be bad enough that we would need to do something. And when you first start looking around at the problem, you might think, oh, this isn't that big a deal until you start thinking, wait a minute, we're heading to a future where – 
we're really stressing how space getting into space is getting easier and easier. Things like reusable rockets, the private space industry. So this is actually something that we should think about now before it does become the next huge environmental problem. Right. And we can get into more of the details of that later. But Lauren, did you say that this was actually a listener request? I'm pretty sure it was. And I unfortunately didn't write down the name of the lovely human who sent it in. So I am so sorry, lovely human. Thank you for listening and for suggesting. And uh, this is your episode. Congratulations. Now, we should also point out that no less an authority than Sir Richard Branson tells us we have nothing to worry about. Oh, well, whatever he tells us, we'll just take that. It's an objective, unbiased opinion. Very short episode. Not at all related to the fact that he (laughs) is overseeing Virgin Galactic's space tourism industry. But what does he actually say? Uh, He actually says, and this, this is something that could also be true, but it, you know, you still have to think about the implications here that the actual carbon dioxide emissions, so CO2 specifically from a rocket launch are uh, less, or at least for a Virgin Galactic style rocket launch, which is a little different from other ones because that would use a larger plane that would then launch a spacecraft from the plane while the plane is already in air. But he says the total CO2 emissions would be less than a round trip uh, flight from New York to London. Normal flight, not space flight. Right. Yeah. So like if you were to get on a plane and fly to London and then party in London for a week and then get back on a plane and fly back to New York, the CO2 emissions from those two flights would be greater than a Virgin Galactic uh, rocket flight. Oh, then it's no big deal. Well, let's have all the space launches. I mean, I'm just going to trade off all those trips to London I take with trips to space. And then I'm, I'm like, reducing my carbon footprint, right? Not so fast, Slick. Okay, so we should look at what uh, some scientists have actually found on the subject of the environmental impact of rocket launches. And and we should preface this by saying, of course, not all rockets are the same. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, There are lots of different combinations of combustants out there. And, of course, they therefore all produce different emissions in different quantities. And so rather than, like, go through each type exhaustively, we're going to talk about some of the wide-ranging effects that are seen. Right. Right. Yeah. To go through every type of solid fuel, liquid fuel rocket, it would it would be its own series. And that would get really, really tedious, chemically tedious after a short while. Though then again, think of the pluses. I mean, just think about how much we love trying to pronounce really long names (laughs) of chemicals. I've got one coming up pretty soon. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) You're in for a treat. Those lovers of tetrafluorohydrochloxabloxab. Doxadine. Yeah, pretty sure that's what uh, Mary Poppins says to make penguins dance for her, but Uh go ahead. Okay, well, uh, one of the big ones, I'm sure you guys encountered this, it it seems to be one of the most prevalent objections to the the environmental impact of rockets is the depletion of stratospheric ozone. So you guys remember back in the 80s, the the chlorofluorocarbons Mm -hmm. controversy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, aerosol cans in particular uh, were were a, a source or CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons, which uh, if they were to get into the stratospheric uh, level of the atmosphere, could end up depleting the ozone layer, creating these holes in the ozone layer. And ozone, as I'm sure most of you out there are aware, is really important for us because it absorbs ultraviolet radiation. It decreases the amount of UV radiation that we receive here on Earth without that protective layer. We would be in far greater uh, danger. We'd be much greater risk of developing things like skin cancer and, and other types of sun damage. Yeah. And so rocket engines typically eject gases and these gases come 
Well, not typically. Rocket engines always eject yeah, gases. They yes, it's part of the gig. It's Maybe not all space flight uh, propellants, but sure, sure. But, but to, rocket but engines, to launch, yeah, yes, rocket engines eject gases, and th- these gases can eject propellants that form chemical reactions with molecules of ozone. And that's not good because we need those molecules of ozone to be not reacted with to stay how they are. To, to hang out there more or less unchanged. That mm-hmm. would be ideal. And, of course, that is not what's been happening since at least the 1970s when we started looking at it. Yeah. Uh, so there was a 2009 article in the journal Astropolitics, the International Journal of Space Politics and Policy, which – that sounds like a good journal. I've never really checked it out before, but I'm sure there's lots of yeah. good talk about space law in it. Yeah. Astropolitics. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering how you would filibuster in space. <laughs> Very quietly. No one <laughs> in space. No one can hear you filibuster. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, the article is called "Limits on the Space Launch Market Related to Stratospheric Ozone Depletion," and the authors note that uh, both solid rocket motors or SRMs and liquid rocket engines, uh, LREs. Both produce emissions that have been shown to directly deplete global ozone. And they mm-hmm. calculate that ozone depletion uh, is going to be a function of payload launch rate and relative mix of SRM and LRE rocket emissions. So it depends on what type you're using and what your your payload and number of launches are. But at the time of publication, they estimated that rocket launches depleted the ozone layer by about 0.03% per year. Right. Which at the time they say, okay, that's pretty much negligible. But mm-hmm. we'll we'll come back to that in a bit. Well, let's let's talk about it a little bit more right now because it turns out that uh, that the, that direct um, uh, injection of chemicals that can react with uh, with uh, ozone. That's not the only thing we have to worry about that could actually affect the ozone layer. Right. Those are the reactive gases that that react with the ozone layer. But there are also – you can talk about emissions of particulate matter. Right. And aluminum oxide and soot are two of those particulates that people have started to look at and say this could actually – really compound that problem because they are chemically reactive surfaces, meaning that the actual particles can be kind of a home for other chemicals to react with ozone. So they're not directly depleting the ozone. Rather, they are acting as sort of a a, a laboratory of sorts for these chemical reactions to happen. It's just these are suspended in the air as a result of being uh, ejected from the rocket as it's going through the stratosphere. So um, uh, specifically, it says here, uh, this was uh, from an article I was reading. It says the chemical reactions in question are pretty nasty and involve the emission of gas molecules referred to as radicals. Uh, and that isn't in the 1980s radical means awesome kind of mean. Uh, it's a single radical molecule in the stratosphere can destroy as many as 10,000 ozone molecules. So uh, aluminum oxide and soot provide the opportunity for more of this ozone killing stuff to get into the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they can they can also in general contribute to climate change. Yeah. Now let's talk about uh, aluminum oxide for a second. One of the two particulates. One of the things about aluminum oxides, besides the fact that it can serve as this uh, um, this launching point for chemical reactions, it's also reflective. So it can actually reflect light that is heading toward Earth back into space. It can, but it also does absorb light on the infrared spectrum. Mm-hmm. So therefore, uh, it seems likely that it could contribute to atmospheric warming and therefore to climate change in the long run. It's it's one of those like more it's, – it's a bigger question mark than the soot issue. The soot issue is a little bit more uh, sure in terms of – 
it's going to mess some stuff up. I guess we could say it's not all in terms of black and silver. That'd be the, the soot and the mm-hmm. aluminum. All right. Anyway, let me talk about soot for a second. So <laughs> the stuff that makes soot black is called black carbon. And generally speaking, most scientists say putting black carbon directly into the stratosphere is what we would typically say is a bad thing. You don't want to do it. Uh, it doesn't stay in the stratosphere for as long as carbon dioxide would. Carbon dioxide can stay up for, for decades, hundreds of years even. Uh, but black carbon would only stay up there for maybe five to ten years. Uh, it, sta- it's, it tends to get washed out of the lower levels of the atmosphere because precipitation will just knock it out of the air. But in the stratosphere, you don't have that to, to contend with. Um, and According to uh, popular science, they, they cited a study that said black carbon absorbs 100,000 times as much energy as carbon dioxide emitted by rockets. So that tells you that it's it's a power player in the in the potential for making a, a climate change worse. Um, so rockets produce about a thousand times more black carbon per unit of fuel compared to normal aircraft. Plus – Rockets are traveling through the stratosphere. So it's a direct injection of this stuff into the layer you absolutely do not want it to go into. Right. Uh, Now, according to computer models, so these are simulations. uh, Obviously, we don't have a ton of data about this. But according to computer models, a ring-shaped cloud of black carbon would form around the area of a launch site where a rocket has come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that cloud of black carbon would actually have both a warming and a cooling effect. The, it would create a shade in a certain region that would immediately start to cool it, but it would also help trap heat. So you would have warming uh, in certain areas and cooling in others. And it could be pretty dramatic. We're talking of a magnitude of five degrees, mm-hmm. although I must add, popular science neglected to say whether those were Celsius or Fahrenheit. Oh. Wait, should we either assume that they're being uh, correct and snobby and just assuming Celsius <laughs> or should we assume that they're being slack and assuming Fahrenheit? Joe, it's called popular science. <laughs> so on worldwide standards, we can go with Celsius. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, that I mean, five degrees is that's enormous. Like mm-hmm. you, you, it sounds like it's nothing, right? Especially if you live someplace that has a fairly – dramatic switch from winter to summer where you've got, you know, a, a big range of temperatures. Five degrees sounds like, oh, well, that's nothing. No, it is huge. Uh, when Most of the climate change models we talk about end up being, well, this could be an increase of maybe 1.3 degrees and everyone freaks out. This is five degrees. <laughs> so uh, now granted, it's much shorter term. So it's not like something that would last forever. If we got to a point where we were seeing these effects, we could say, we're going to put the, the a hold on space launches and change things up because if we continue to do this, it'll just keep the problem – it'll perpetuate it, right? Uh, also, I should add that the model they were using was assuming a 1,000 launches per year. Well, which is an order of magnitude larger than what we're seeing right now, right? Yeah. It's usually about 100 per year. Yeah, that, that would be like – on the very That would end. be a busy year. 100 yeah. would be a busy year. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But yeah, a 1,000 launches a year – is is way more than what we do right now. However, remember, we're talking about a future where space tourism is presumably going to be a thing where re- reusable rockets are bringing the cost of getting into space down. And once you start removing those barriers, then obviously there are a lot of reasons to try and get out into space from science to tourism to all sorts of you know surveillance, all kinds of reasons. Um, it's not unreasonable to suspect that in the future we would see 
uh, around a thousand launches a year. I mean, that's an, an enormous amount, but it could happen. In fact, one company, uh, Xcor, X-C-O-R, uh, wants to ramp up like when they hit full speed, they want to be having four launches per day. Ooh. Now, wow. even assuming that that's just work days, like business days, mm-hmm. and removing all the popular holidays in the United States, this year, 2016, has 250 of those days. Wow. 250 times four is 1,000. So there you go. There's your 1,000 so a year. So that alone, sure. Um, uh, and, and it's important to keep in mind here that the effects on the atmosphere aren't the only effects that we're potentially looking at. No, there yeah. are multiple reasons you might not want to be a frog that lives near a launch site. <laughs> yeah, the- <laughs> I generally don't want to be a frog, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. They're They're real cute, but... I this find that ma- a narrow-minded attitude. This is <laughs> making me think, wasn't there a picture of a rocket launching with a frog mm-hmm. hanging off of oh, it, like, yeah. desperately? Oh, poor frog. Yeah. This this episode goes out to you, our amphibian friend. And at any rate. Uh, but no, there are legitimately uh, documented negative environmental effects on the ground surrounding right. rocket launch sites. Right, which is not a big surprise. You see these these rockets taking off. Obviously, massive amounts of gas are emitted right there at ground level. Most of that, however, is not a huge deal for the immediate area. In fact, one of the most dangerous uh, chemicals associated with rocket launches wasn't really part of a rocket launch at all. It's kind of a, a, a secondary chemical that was used in order to clean rocket engines, especially after tests. So this wasn't necessarily for a full launch. It might be a test situation, uh, but it would – those tests would typically take place at launch facilities like Kennedy Space Center. So one of the byproducts uh, that was particularly dangerous is trichloroethylene or TCE. I think I got that right on the first try. I'll never get it right again, so I'm going to stick with TCE. Hmm. At any rate, uh, that was used to clean the engines and remove hydrocarbon deposits. So it was in order to, to clean out an engine so that you could use it again if you were in a testing phase. Uh, but TCE, it turns out, is a very toxic chemical. It's carcinogenic. And worse than that, if you put it in the ground, it can bind with soil and sand and stay chemically active for a really long time. It's possible for it to get into groundwater, although not likely because it's actually more dense than water, so it tends to sink down. But there are a lot of geologic processes that could push it back up into uh, the atmosphere where that would really be a problem. I should also point out that the places where uh, the deposits are People don't draw their water from the groundwater in those places, but it still could be, have a really bad impact on wildlife and the environment. So, also, water doesn't really stay put. It yeah, can. yeah, you can't. I mean, you know, water water's like me, baby. It goes where it wants to. <laughs> at any rate, so uh, I was looking at Joe the whole time of that. He's just just <laughs> shaking his head. So keep in mind that uh, so before the when the space race first started, right. All the way up until after the Apollo 13 uh, mission, there was no such thing as the Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States. There was no governing body that created the policies and laws that would uh, guide organizations like, I don't know, NASA Hmm. to dispose of harmful chemicals in a responsible way. No, the EPA is a creature of the Nixon administration. That's true. Hmm. Yeah, Nixon uh, formed it in December 1970. So all the launches that happened before that, there was no such governing body. 
So NASA did what made sense. It was cheap. Uh, they dug a hole and they dumped the TCE in it. This <laughs> seems like a good place for this. There you go. Oddly Frogs. enough, not such a good place. So, yeah, now NASA is currently cleaning that soil and uh, has been for quite some time. I should, shouldn't should – it's not like they just started. They've been doing it year over year. They, they're they always uh, allotting a certain number of millions of dollars toward that effort. But from what I understand, we're still looking at some uh, decades of cleaning ahead of us. It's not like it's going to be um, – uh, taken care of overnight. I mean, more than 250 contaminated sites were identified uh, as being places where TCE is is found at least in some measurable amount. Now, NASA actually strikes me as fairly environmentally conscientious as uh, far as government organizations go. So I, I would imagine they're doing a better job these days. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they have cut way back on using TCE. They still use it in small amounts, but they also follow very strict rules about how to dispose of it. Uh, but they're using a lot of other alternatives that are uh, chemically, they, they react in similar ways to C- TCE, but they don't have that carcinogenic uh, factor. They're not toxic the way TCE is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the hope is that future launches will have less of an environmentally dangerous effect on the ground around the launch site due to these sorts of chemicals. Uh, but but this is this is a byproduct. Of course, some contaminants are released by some launch combustions themselves that affect the, the ground site around the launch. Uh, so solid booster rockets, which are what the space shuttle used for part of their launch sequence, combust aluminum and ammonium perchlorates and release alumina particles, which, which have that effect on the atmosphere as discussed above. But they also release hydrochloric acid, mm. like 230 tons of hydrochloric acid per flight. That's that sounds like a lot. It's not a little bit. Um, and you know, it's it's water soluble, which means that when it does fall to the ground, it contaminates the local water supply. NASA found reduced numbers of plant species near launch sites, partially due to this stuff, and it can make bodies of water too acidic for fish to survive in. See, this makes me think of the. Uh Again, of the 80s, because acid rain was something that you heard about all the time. Mm-hmm. There was a song that Tim Burton sung about it in uh, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Yeah, actually, Tim Curry. Tim yes. Curry, Tim Curry. Yes. We were talking about Tim Burton right before the show. Right, and he just right. I knew exactly mind. who you're talking about. But t- Tim I Curry. heard Tim Curry. Tim Curry was the villain of yeah. Fern Gully, so I, I assume he was in favor of acid rain. Yeah, yes. yeah, he was pretty excited. As about I recall, it. just before the song, he says something like, Toxic sludge, mother's milk. And then he just goes into this song, and it only gets creepier from there. That was a, that was a really good uh, impersonation of, of what was the character's name? Smog? Sm- no, Smug? No, uh, I think no. Hexus. Heck, Hexus. Oh wow! Oh my goodness! Way Hexus. to go, I, I was Joe! Like, my references are all over the place today. Smog? That's the dragon from the hop. Anyway, okay, yeah. I'm fine. All right. At any rate, <laughs> so yes, off scale here. Getting yeah, back. Yeah, we talked a little bit uh, already about the fact that that. In the grand scheme of things, we aren't launching that many rockets uh, today, right? It's not like we're going crazy and there's a launch every single day of the week, like not like what people are planning for the future. Uh, so where are we? Like how many rockets are going up, say, a couple years ago? Well, I uh, found one article on spaceflightnow.com that if it's correct, they said that 2014 – uh, had the greatest number of space launches of any year since 1994, and that number was 
92. Mm. So that's not a whole lot. In 2013, they said there were 81 attempted space launches. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, the, the different types of emissions and their effects don't necessarily compare across the board. But just for a sense of scale, let's look at airplanes. Sure. Uh, I found one blog post that crunched some numbers from an industry report compiled by the Air Transport Action Group. And it estimated that there were a little more than 100,000 conventional air flights every day around the world in 2014. That's a lot. That's a hundred, about a hundred thousand every day. And if that number is correct, even if every rocket launch had the impact of ten thousand commercial air flights, our current rate of space launches wouldn't come close to rivaling the air travel industry. Right, and that's not the only right. travel industry. Not to mention there. cars, heavy industry, coal burning. So, so it is. Um, worth keeping scale in mind. Rockets aren't really yeah. a big problem today. Right. Comparatively of, speaking, it's a it's a drop in the pollution bucket. Right. Yeah, but remember, this is a future focused podcast, and as you said before, uh, space tourism might pick up. On top of that, uh, mining asteroids, harvesting helium from the moon, servicing networks of space stations, satellites, extraterrestrial colonies. In the future. We hope there are going to be a lot of space launches. Mm -hmm. So if that is the case, we really would need to find some kind of solution to the problem of, of space launch emissions and its, and its byproducts. Yes. So do we have any such alternatives? Even in just planning stages. Uh, yes. NASA has one type of fuel they're calling ALICE, which is short for aluminum ice. And they conducted a project with grad students at Purdue and Penn State with the Air Force Office of Scientific Research to create this, this more environmentally friendly propellant from nanoscale aluminum powder and water ice. <laughs> wow. Uh, and dur- during combustion, it produces just hydrogen gas and aluminum oxide. So not that bad. Uh, part of the idea here is that it could be manufactured on other water ice bearing places in space like the moon or Mars or asteroids. Very Um, useful. And the aluminum nanoparticles are are really the key here because they combust at lower temperatures than other fuels like 700 degrees Celsius rather than the standard 2000. Um, they also combust faster than larger particles because of their increased surface area. Uh, so it's like a, like a Twitch gamer who turns their sensitivity levels all the way up. Uh, (laughs) you're, you're giving the researchers better control over the combustion and therefore over the rocket's thrust. Uh, they, they did a proof of concept test in 2009 and successfully launched a small rocket with Alice, a nine foot, a.k.a. about three meter rocket that they launched about uh, 1,300 feet, a.k.a. 400 meters into the atmosphere, which is a really short distance. Granted, <laughs> it's not even up out of the troposphere. But uh, if production could be scaled up, the researchers involved really thought that Alice could could one day replace traditional rocket fuel. And I haven't seen a whole lot of buzz about this one since that test in 2009. We will be on the lookout. And one is uh, another one that is definitely still being researched is mixtures based on paraffin wax. Ooh. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's a type of hydrocarbon wax that's commonly used for all sorts of things here on Earth, not related to rockets. Uh, like like it, it's used in candles, it's used in food storage, it's used in sculpting, and. Researchers, uh, specifically at Stanford, are looking into how they can put it into hybrid rockets, which are so-called because they incorporate both liquid and solid combustion components, generally an oxidizer that's stored as a liquid and then becomes a gas when they shoot it out to do the explosions. Now, I would ask, though, is paraffin wax, that that's essentially a, a, a petroleum product, right? So that would be a hydrocarbon. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yes, it's absolutely a hydrocarbon. It is going to be releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. It's therefore going to be uh, uh, part part of this CO2 problem of global warming. But maybe not as bad as a regular rocket. But it's it's just it's in most of the uh, combinations that they're using it in. It's only it's only releasing water vapor and CO2. And so, you know, no hydrochloric acid. <laughs> yeah. There are other, yeah, some of the other uh, emissions are eliminated. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. All this talk about paraffin wax just has me flashing back to Stephen King's It. Because that played a very important part in the oh, book. Oh, oh, What was it? What? The paraffin wax? Yeah. That's what uh, the, the main character was using to, or, or actually his little brother was using to make a little paper boat, which he floats in the storm. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, they, in the storm and they, drain. We yeah. all float down here. Oh. <laughs> Tim Curry. Hi. Th- yeah, thank Tim you. Tim Curry's featuring heavily in this episode. Tim Curry. This is not the first episode of Forward Thinking where we've referred extensively to Tim Curry. It's That's almost true. as though we're huge nerds and we really like Tim Curry. Yeah. Um, okay, Lauren, please continue. Okay, so uh, so hybrid rockets are really cool because they can make launches safer, like less prone to catastrophic failure than either purely liquid or or solid fuel rockets, huh. which, you know, not having any more Challenger disasters would be really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so these researchers at Stanford have been working on a paraffin-based fuel since 2001, and tests in collaboration with NASA up through 2014 or so was, was the most recent that I've seen, but I think they're still working on it, uh, suggests that with further refinement, hybrid paraffin rockets could be not just cleaner and safer than today's rockets, but more efficient, a.k.a. cheaper, as well. Ah, well, I mean, uh, we've always got an eye towards the bottom line and the dollar sign when it comes to rocket launches. And of course, as that dollar sign comes down, we see more rocket launches, making this question even more important for us to answer. Exactly. Oh, well, and hypothetically, if it's more efficient, it's producing less of this byproduct mm-hmm. gas, as, right. as in CO2, and therefore is having less of an environmental impact. Yeah. Yeah. So I think... Um, Overall, I am optimistic because, one, I think we're still pretty far out from having uh, uh, a thousand of these launches per year. And I think uh, we're going to have some more time to refine our approaches and, and make sure that the technologies we use are the most uh, environmentally conscious that we can come up with that also are you know, make sense from a cost perspective. Plus, guys – we're totally going to have space elevators. Yeah, that's the thing I was about to bring up. I mean, all of this is played out on the assumption that we're going to continue to use uh, propellant-based rockets yeah. to get to space, which I think actually is probably a fairly safe assumption. But I think we, so too. we have well, for twenty to forty years, <laughs> right? But we have in the past looked at alternative means of getting to space, and I, we we don't want to entirely rule those out because if somebody could actually get one working on a regular basis in a in a feasible way, that would be a, a wonderful alternative to rockets. Sure, uh, and also, I mean, we it's it's important to point out that the Virgin Galactic approach, this idea of launching a spacecraft from something that's already flying, that could obviously you have reduced the uh, the need for actual rocket fuel. Because you are already at a higher altitude um, and you're already traveling at a, a decent velocity, although nowhere close to escape velocity. Uh, I think that is another potential. Clearly, that's not going to work for every kind of spacecraft that we want to get out into space. And also, we keep hoping that we'll get to a level of sophistication where – we can get enough stuff into space where we can then continually build stuff out in space already 
And so it's already out beyond the uh, Earth's atmosphere, and that's not a problem at all. That, however, again, we're talking 20 to 40 years <laughs> easy for that yeah. kind of stuff because you still have to get the stuff up there initially – at mm-hmm. least the the baseline of whatever you're going to use, uh-huh. and then at that point you you probably need to be like mining some asteroids yep. for extra materials, that kind of thing. And eventually you're going to probably want to switch out your personnel, so that's going to involve what? people going Weird. down and coming back up. But but if you're able to do a lot of that work in space itself, you reduce the need for the number of launches on Earth. So there are a lot of interesting factors that could potentially be at play in the future. I've got an idea. What's that? We're going to pair. This problem with our recent episode on megatall buildings and just build a building <laughs> that goes to space. Perfect. None of this space elevator stuff. Yeah. You can take the stairs. Yeah. I think, I think we talked about that in our space <laughs> elevators episode, actually. We talked about the, the idea of building a building so tall that you would be essentially in space. Oh, didn't somebody actually propose that? Like some Russian guy a hundred years ago had a, I a space s- tower idea. I want to say yes. I, 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 it's tickling my memory, but it's been just long enough that I don't, I can't pull that information up. Uh, you know, I hate to be a naysayer, but I think that's probably not possible. I, I'm pretty confident that you are correct <laughs> in that assessment. Uh, well, this was a lot of fun to look into because it was one of those things that before we started researching it, we honestly didn't know. Like, well, is there is there a measurable environmental impact? Mm-hmm. Um, it appears that there there is, and you could argue it's negligible. And I, I probably wouldn't argue against it right now. But then, keeping in mind this ramping up process, we will likely see. It won't be negligible forever, so it's good to think about it now before we are forced to to think about it in the future. Yeah. But guys, please let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any uh, suggestions for future episodes. We love hearing from you. Make sure you send that message either to our email address, which is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. At Twitter, we are fwthinking. On Facebook, you can just search FW Thinking. Our account will pop up. You can leave us a message there. We love hearing from you guys, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bedator. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.